Good morning. Good morning. Take out your Bibles and please turn to Genesis 17. It's good to see some of you. Thank you, the rest of you, for joining us online. I got to preach in our early service for the first time in months without a camera. It's kind of nice. But now I got to remember uh, that there's camera as well. Um, so we're very thankful that you're able to still join us and very thankful that we can and see faces again. And uh, God has been very, very good to us. So if you're at Genesis 17 this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. Genesis 7, 9 through 14. Two weeks ago, I mentioned uh, that there were two main words throughout this chapter, this difficult chapter. Last time we looked at covenant, repeated 13 times. This week, we're going to look at circumcision, repeated 10 times. And then we're going to come back next week and wrap up the chapter by looking at the word Christian in verses uh, 15 through 17, 27, repeated obviously zero times. But remember, one of the important questions you should obviously be asking yourself as you get to a text like this or any text is, why is this here? If we believe that these are literally God's words inspired by him and preserved by him, why did he inspire and preserve these words? What are we meant to learn from them? What are we meant to do with these? What does this covenant that has something to do with circumcision have anything to do with us as Christians? Well, that's the question that we're going to seek to answer, but I don't think that we can really do that until we first actually attempt to understand what circumcision is. Not the most pleasant thing to, to preach about, but it's here. It's in the text. It's a major theme in the Old Testament. So we need to sort out why it's here and why God wants you to know this. And two weeks ago, I tried to help us begin to sort all this out with another C with the word conditions. We're trying to understand the nature of this covenant that God makes with Abraham. Remember, covenants are just about relationship and relationships are everything. Relationship is life. Consider how difficult these last couple of months have been uh, cut off physically from many of our relationships with one another. It's been hard because relationships are so central to life. Consider how troubled things are right now this last week as relationship and, and trust breaks down, as there has been Terrible injustice and then terrible conflict in response as we've witnessed firsthand uh, the tragedy of, of the taking, uh, the murder of George Floyd's life and then just the horrible aftermath. It's just, it's just been an awful week. Part of that points to the centrality of relationships to life. We were built to be in fellowship horizontally with one another. When that breaks down, life breaks down. We've been seeing that in the last couple of months, and especially this last week. It's been difficult. We were made for relationship with God, horizontal, vertical relationship. And without that, life doesn't work. We've been seeing that. We're just not as entirely um, convinced that that is part of, of the problem of, of everything. But it's all to some degree because relationship is everything. I want to convince you of that. This morning. And covenants are how God the Creator King relates to man, the creature subject. And if John 17, 3, knowing God is eternal life, that's relationship, knowing Him and then being known by Him. And if He only relates to us through covenant, then we must 
try and understand what these are and how they relate to us. Uh, Pastor Harry put something very simply last week that helped clarify something I've been putting very complicatedly. It's even a complicated adverb uh, there. But at the beginning of the sermon last week, Pastor Harry said, God provides what God commands. God provides what God commands. I I didn't ask him, but I assume he's building off there of Augustine's famous quote in his uh, great work, Confessions, which would end up being one of the most important lines ever written in the history of literature, sparking off arguably the greatest controversy the church has ever fought when Augustine wrote, God, grant what you command, command what you will. In other words, God, as God, gets to command whatever he desires. He's God, but he's also good. So his desires, his will, is always good. God's commands are good. But that wasn't the controversial part. That was the first phrase. Grant what you command. So Augustine is saying there, calling out in a prayer to God, whatever you command, God, we in our sin are powerless to perform. So you must Perform it for us and in us and through us. That set off the greatest controversy in church history. A controversy that is still going on today. It's not what we're talking about today. We don't have time. Uh, But Pelagianism in some form or fashion is alive and well today in the Catholic Church and even in many Protestant uh, evangelical churches. Just go Google it. Read some church history. But but getting back to the point, uh, our only hope is that God provides what God Commands. The only hope of our world is that God provides what God commands. And so that's a wonderfully succinct and simple way to put what I was arguing two weeks ago. There are conditions to this covenant. Uh, conditions that must be met. We are trying to understand how these conditions relate to God's grace. I think, hopefully, Lord willing, a look at circumcision can help us understand that. God provides what God commands. Absolutely true. But I want to add a little something to that. This is important also. God provides what God commands to those who are his. God provides what God commands to those who are his children. So a big question we're going to need to sort out in all of this is who are his? Who are God's children? Who are God's people? You've got to keep that in mind because that's going to be very important as we build towards next week. And our understanding of circumcision this week is going to lay important groundwork for how all of this applies to us. This strange chapter, what does it have to do with Christians today in the mess that we find ourselves in in 21st century America? But first, we've got to figure out circumcision. We use that word a lot today. It's been a whole week studying circumcision. Strange week. Many of you are probably right now thinking something similar to Calvin. When Calvin first gets to this verse in his commentary, he writes this. He says, very strange and unaccountable would this command at first sight appear. So if you um, feel that this all seems very strange and hard to explain at first sight, well, you're, you're not alone. Uh, Calvin, arguably the greatest mind in church history, agrees with you. But we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is purposeful in all that he does. And so we know that he gives us this text for a reason and that he gives Abraham uh, circumcision for some reason. And it must be important and it must be important for us to know. Um, And so God is going to say to Abraham, this is my covenant, circumcision, keep it. And anyone who does not shall be cut off. He has broken my covenant. 
So, I'm going to argue, somewhat just intentionally, annoyingly, provocatively this morning, um, that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. If you are not circumcised, uh, you are cut off from the covenant, which means cut off from God, which means cut off from life, which means death and hell. I'll explain specifically what I mean. You know what I'm probably building uh, towards. So we'll get there. But why is this strange passage here? I think ultimately it's to further reveal to us what is required for death-defeating, life-giving relationship with God. To further reveal to us what man must believe about God and what God requires of man. You are tempted to take God's relationship with you as a believer for granted. I want to guard you from doing that this morning by showing you what is required for God to be able to enter into relationship with someone like me or someone like uh, you guys. So what we're going to do, we're honestly only going to really look at verses 9 through 11 this morning, and then we'll come back next week and look at the rest of the text. Um, But I have four points as we try to understand what circumcision is. Uh, Point number one, we need to first see again that God demands covenant obedience. He demands it. He requires it. He commands it. Um, Then number two, um, circumcision symbolizes covenant obedience. Then number three, that covenant obedience requires heart circumcision. And finally and fourthly, God provides heart circumcision through the covenant obedient seed. So that's how we're going to kind of work through these verses and try to understand what this strange sign is. Is. It's a lot to do. Uh, let's read the text first. Uh, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to read for you verses 1 through 14. We'll stop at verse 14, and we'll come back next week, and we'll pick up in verse uh, 15. So Genesis chapter 17, you can follow along as I read verses 1 through 14. But pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. And be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be 
cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let's please uh, go to the Lord and pray um, before we get into God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are very thankful for your word. We are very thankful that you have specifically inspired this word. Uh, We thank you that you have specifically ordained this word to be heard uh, by this people on this day. So I pray and ask that you would work uh, through your word. Father, we come into this room and uh, we gather around our screens, just feeling many different things, various different degrees of of comfort or discomfort or uh, peace or lack of peace. Father, your word is more than capable to minister to every single person in every single uh, diverse uh, situation. So, Father, I am very aware uh, right now that I am desperately dependent upon you and in need of your spirit uh, to come and work in the hearts of your people. Uh, Give your people what they need uh, through your word this morning. Father, show us yourself and show us how good and gracious and kind you have been uh, to come in and to solve our sin problem and to restore us with the relationship to you that is life itself. I pray that we would rejoice in what you have done uh, to rescue us uh, and give us that relationship. Father, help us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so point number one, we touched on it kind of a couple of weeks ago. Uh, God commands covenant obedience. Uh, Remember where we are. Uh, Abraham has failed spectacularly in the previous chapter. Uh, There, Abraham looks more like the uh, father of lack of faith. Uh, He has sinned. He has done great harm to himself and to Sarah and to Hagar. It's been a mess. And remember, that mess, what Abraham does, comes right after the tale, on the tales, of what God has done for Abraham in Genesis 15. God has made these unbelievably great and gracious promises to him. He has promised him a seed, a son, and a great people who would be given a great land. And then in one of the best scenes in the whole Bible, in verses 17 through 21, we saw God enter into covenant with Abraham. Now, 15:18 says God made a covenant with Abraham. Literally in the Hebrew it says God cut a covenant with Abraham. An important word uh, for today. Abraham's response, well, first thing that we know of is chapter 16. It's sin and unbelief. And so the fact that God comes again in chapter 17 to Abraham and reaffirms these grand promises should give us great encouragement. But we're seeing that ultimately it is the nature of God to make covenant and it is the nature of man to break covenant. God makes, man breaks. God makes, man breaks. And that's going to be the persistent pattern of the whole Old Testament. We're going to come back to that next week. And yet, here is this good and gracious God coming again to sinful and faithless Abraham, and he confirms his covenant with him. Verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you. Even after all that, Abraham, all the unbelief, all the sin, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Verse 7, Here's the main idea. And there's a great tendency to get covenant confused. It's so easy to get lost in the covenant complexity. It's a man-made covenant complexity. And I am guilty of it too. But always come back to this. Here is our North Star. Here's our home base. What is covenant about? Verse 7. 
And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's covenant. That's the core covenant principle. That's the point of covenant relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. Covenant is God with us. But I think part of the problem, part of our difficulty in understanding this and appreciating this is a possible underlying and unspoken assumption that we all sometimes have. Well, of course, God is with us. Of course, God enters relationship with us. He is love, you know, so it's kind of his job. And well, let's be honest, we're, we're pretty great, right? Who, who wouldn't want to be in relationship with us? And so we all have this implicit tendency to assume relationship. And when we assume relationship, we will never appreciate relationship. And when we assume relationship, it's often because we don't really understand the nature of relationship and that there are always obligations to relationship. All relationships. And this is the point that I've been belaboring for a while now. Can't get into detail at the moment, but it's really, really important. I think it's a big factor in our failure to really appreciate what God has done to restore relationship. And that fact is simply that God is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly holy. He is without fault or flaw. Not practically perfect in every way, but actually perfect in every way. And how did this perfect God make us? In his image and likeness. He made us like him, for him, fit for relationship with him. Chapter 6, paragraph 1 of the 1689, the confession, the London Baptist Confession of Faith says this. It can say things in two sentences that I can't say in weeks. That's so wonderful. Use confessions. Here's what it says. God created humanity upright and perfect. Upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. And break it, they did. And so paragraph two. By this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. That's a perfect summary. God is perfect, and he created us, his people, in his image, perfect for perfect relationship with him. He gave us his perfect law, his good and gracious law, and we broke it, falling, failing, losing righteousness. And since God is righteous, we thus then lost communion with him. No righteousness means no relationship. God has always demanded covenant obedience. And it's not an arbitrary commandment. Right? His perfect nature, his holiness and his righteousness requires it. That there be righteousness and relationship, uh, to righteousness to be in relationship with him. It's always been the condition. So he makes the covenant, we break the covenant. Adam sinned. We all sinned. We were not covenant obedient, and so we were cut off from the relationship. And we've all seen the ramifications of that in our own lives. We've seen the ramifications of that in the life of our world, especially in this last week. You can't miss this. You have to be reminded of this. This is the only thing that explains why everything is so terrible. 
Ultimately, sin is always the answer. And if that's true, we've got to keep in mind then that any ultimate solution can only come from that sin being dealt with. The wages of sin is death. So that's always been true. We've always been surrounded by that fact. But it seems even more so, right, in the past couple of months, two months of quarantine, two months in the epicenter, surrounded by death in our very own backyard, the whole country, the whole world. And then this this last week, uh, just the misery uh, that sin wreaks and the havocs as relationships are destroyed and everything falls apart. Sin wrecks horizontal relationship. And most importantly and foundationally, sin has first wrecked vertical relationship. And so we've been largely focusing up until this point in chapters 12 and chapters 15 on on the covenant promises, on God's part of the covenant, what he was going to do to restore the relationship that we ruined. Well, now we're shifting to look at the covenant obligations. We're shifting to look at Abraham's part of the covenant. And this shouldn't at all be strange. We're sometimes in our reformed world and in our grace where we're like, oh wait, obligations or two parts of the party and we have to do something. No, listen, a relationship by definition involves two parties. And so now we're looking at the part of the second party, Abraham's part, the part of the one with whom God enters into covenant. And notice that the shift is signaled for us in the text. Look at verse 9. We've seen the subject, the actor, in verses 1 through 8, all the eyes. God is speaking. I'll do this for you. I'll make my covenant with you. I, I, I. That's the promise. Look at verse 9. The subject shifts. As for you now. All right, Abraham, I've told you what I was going to do. I have graciously cut my covenant with you. I have graciously established my covenant with you. Uh, That is my covenant promise. Now here is your covenant promise obligation. Here is what you are to do. You shall keep my covenant. Okay, keep my covenant. What does that mean? The covenant is God's legal and loving, his binding and blessing relationship with Abraham. Well, how does Abraham keep that? Well, keep reading. God tells us. Verse 10, we find the same verb. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. If your first response is not, what? You're not paying attention. Covenant, relationship, sin, and oh, God, he's going to do all these great things to enter into relationship with his people. Hey, here, be circumcised. Calvin himself is like, uh, this is very strange and unaccountable. So what's going on? Like, Out of nowhere, circumcision. What does this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with covenant? Point number two. Circumcision symbolizes covenant obedience. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Look at how closely covenant is connected to circumcision. So closely that in verse 10, God can say, This is my covenant with you, which you shall keep. Be circumcised. He says, in a way, covenant is circumcision. Then in verse 11, he says, this shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision is the sign of the covenant, but it is so closely connected with it that the covenant itself can be identified with and by it. This is the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision signifies it is a sign of the whole thing. 
Okay, then what does circumcision signify? Let's, let's just, let's, we can't skip over the strangeness of this. Always ask why. Why is this the sign? What is being communicated through this sign? Why is God commanding Abraham to do this? Well, I don't think we need to go into all the graphic details. It is very graphic. Uh, but I think we all understand uh, what it is. Uh, the Hebrew word mul ba- basically means just to cut off. When translated into the Greek for the Septuagint, they chose the word peritome, which is the compound of the word meaning around and the verb meaning to cut. So it just means to cut. So it's simply the, the removal of the foreskin of the male organ of procreation. I guess pretty personal, and that's pretty painful. It's pretty brutal, and it's pretty bloody. Why? Why does God command this? What does this have to do with covenant? Well, think back to the beginning for a second. What was the very first command that God gave to the man and the woman? It's Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a command. First of all, don't we have a pretty great God? Right? Truly, we can see that his commandments are not burdensome. Be fruitful and multiply. He has created the man and the woman in his image, like him, to be with him. And he commands them to create more men and women in his image, like him, to be with him. Procreate, be fruitful, multiply more and more people in the image of God so that more and more people could experience life with God in relationship with God. Then there's the fall. In spite of all his goodness and blessing, they question God's goodness and blessing. Instead of trusting him, they doubt him. Instead of receiving him and his good word and ways, they reject him and choose their own good word and ways. And everything falls apart. Sin enters into the world, Romans 5, and death through sin. You cannot reject the good God of life and expect to receive anything but evil and death. But we've seen in great detail, we've come back time and time again to Genesis 3.15. And we've seen that God precisely gives them more than they could expect or deserve. Because he comes in and in the midst of his just judgment against sin, he makes them a promise. He gives them a promise of grace. And what was that promise of grace about? Procreation. It was about a seed. It was about a son. A man would come and solve the problem that man in his sin created. Sin ruined the relationship. Sin caused a forced separation. The thing that we were created for, the one for whom we were created, was lost when we chose sin and rebellion. And so this whole story is about what God is going to do about the problem. What he is going to do to restore the relationship with sinful humanity. But to do that, something has to be done about the sin that separates. And to do that, someone has to pay for the sin that separates. And again, if sin is ultimately the cause of all of the problems, something that deals with that sin is the only ultimate solution to all of the problems. And so the whole story of Abraham is about God and how he, through Abraham, is going to bless all the nations. How? By bringing through Abraham this promised seed, this son who is going to deal with our sin problem. And so the heart of God's promise to Abraham is a seed. That to Abraham, though old, to Sarah, though old and barren, God was going to give them a son. 
this seed. Very first command, be fruitful and multiply. Seeds, promise of grace, Genesis 3.15, fruitful and multiply. A seed of the woman, promise to Abraham, Genesis 12.15.17, fruitful and multiply. I will give you a seed. Sign of this covenant, a mark, a cutting of the very organ of being fruitful and multiplying. And don't forget that this is coming right after chapter 16, right after Abraham has sought to get a seed his own way through the flesh, through sin, by taking a woman other than his wife, uh, by sleeping with Hagar. Sign of the covenant, circumcision, a cutting, showing us first that whatever is born of the flesh is sin. Showing us that man's ways, chapter 16, do not and will not work ever. That man's solution cannot ever ultimately solve man's problem. That now everything in and of and from man is sin. Which means then that second, man's only hope is God. Circumcision symbolizes that the only solution then for man's problem is God's provision. God's solution. Not flesh, but spirit. Not what Abraham does, not Ishmael, but what God does, Isaac. So God is symbolizing very graphically both the wages of sin, cutting off blood representing death, and at the same time, his grace in dealing with that sin and representing life through the seed. So this sign serves a dual function. That will be an important concept next week. This sign both marks Abraham, it sets him apart, it cuts him off from sin in the world, thus signifying the blessing that comes from God and in obedience to God's law, but at the same time, it warns anyone who would not keep the covenant. Let's peek down at verse 14. Anyone who is not circumcised, anyone who is not cut, shall be cut off. He has broken my covenant. Thus signifying the curse that comes from being separated from God and disobeying his law. So you see, circumcision in the one sign is a sign of both the blessing and the curse. Both the sin and what God was going to do about the sin. And so when God says, keep my covenant, be circumcised, listen, he's not just saying, hey, get this painful physical procedure done. No, he is saying... He's signifying what we saw last week in verse two weeks ago in verse one. Walk before me and be blameless. Commands. Whole bunch of promises. Command. Be circumcised. God demands covenant obedience. You must be righteous to be in relationship with a righteous God. Circumcision signifies that perfect righteousness is required to be in relationship with a perfectly righteous God. Listen to Calvin. He says, If a righteous status is to be expected from circumcision, it is on this condition that he who is circumcised must serve God wholly and perfectly. Circumcision then requires perfection. Circumcision requires perfection. Better yet, listen to Paul. Uh, Galatians 5.3 I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Circumcision requires perfection. Circumcision is a sign of the perfect 
righteousness that God requires. Circumcision is verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. It is a sign of that, which is a serious problem for us. Point number three. Covenant obedience requires heart circumcision. This isn't as miserable as getting this procedure done as an adult sounds. It should have been hundreds of men at the same time getting this procedure. We see Abram had over 300 soldiers um, chapters ago. This is going to be a whole lot of guys getting this painful procedure. Uh, the reality, though, is far, far worse. Any man could have this procedure done. No man can do what this procedure represents. No man uh, can fulfill the covenant condition of perfect covenant obedience that circumcision symbolizes. So as I said at the beginning, you must be circumcised to be saved because circumcision represents the blamelessness and the perfect righteousness that is required for relationship with a perfectly righteous God. How's that going for you? We've seen Abraham sin again and again, and we're not done with it yet. There's more to come. Uh, You already know your own sin. There is not perfect righteousness to be found in Abraham nor in you. So how then is this not hopeless? Well, it's actually not precisely because of circumcision. This is why we really need to understand circumcision. I just think we kind of ignore it. It's a a physical marker of the Jewish people, or it's something to do, or we don't really know. It's, It's not hopeless. And it's actually all this is quite hopeful because circumcision was never the point. Its point was always to point to something else. Circumcision is a sign. And the hope is what it is a sign of. I say at the beginning, you must be circumcised to be saved. What does Paul say? What about Galatians 5, 6? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Oh, trouble. 1 Corinthians 7:19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Whoops. Hey, what's what's going on here? How can circumcision be such an important thing in the Abrahamic covenant? You are cut off without it. And I'm saying you must be circumcised, and yet Paul is saying, "Hey, by the way, circumcision counts for nothing." And how about Galatians 6:15? Again, notice how it starts, same thing. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But, here it is, here we go, but a new creation. And that's not a new connection. That was always the connection, old and new. That was always the point of circumcision. It was the outward physical sign of the inward spiritual reality. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Go to Deuteronomy, if you would like. We'll be there in a second. Three spots. Deuteronomy chapter 10. I think this is very interesting. This is not a New Testament thing. This is an Old Testament thing. Circumcision shows up a ton in the book of Genesis. It's commanded uh, briefly in Exodus 12. There's a really strange story in Exodus 4 that if you want to go figure out for me, go read that. Um, But Exodus 12, we see that no one can eat the Passover meal without being circumcised. That's not really mentioned again. It's commanded only once in Leviticus in chapter 12, repeating the command here. Every male must be circumcised on the eighth day. And keep in mind, this is a sign that's picked up and carried over into the Mosaic covenant. Again, important for next week. But then Deuteronomy. Circumcision only shows up in two spots in the book of Deuteronomy. Old Testament Israel has been stubborn and rebellious. They have received 
physical circumcision, but the vast majority of them do not know the Lord. Go read the end of Hebrews chapter 3. They fell in the wilderness because of their sin. They did not enter into God's rest because of their unbelief and disobedience. So they are circumcised, but not part of the spiritual people of God. And so now the next generation stands poised to enter into the promised land. And so Moses is preparing them. He is teaching them. And what does Moses command them to do as they're getting ready to go into and take the land? Uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. He says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Circumcise your heart. What does that mean? Exactly. Look back up at verse 12. These are the same thing. Look at verse 12, how he starts off this section. Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? All right, covenants, conditions, uh, obedience. What does he require? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, what's that sound like? Covenant obedience. It's perfect righteousness. That's what heart circumcision is. That's what God requires. Not physical circumcision. It by itself is nothing. It's useless. It's a sign that points to this. But how? How would they do that? How do you circumcise your heart? How do you actually walk in all his ways and love him with all your heart and soul? If you don't understand this, this is utterly hopeless. Go to Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29. God is now renewing his covenant with his people in Deuteronomy 29. He calls them in verse 9. He says, keep, same word as uh, 17, keep the words of this covenant to them. Israel has just utterly failed to do that so far. Why is that? Why have they failed? Look at 29 verse 4. But to this day... The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And so God then goes on to warn them about what is going to happen. He knows that they are going to be unfaithful again. But then in the very next chapter, look at chapter 30, after all that happens, after all of their repeated stubborn sin and rebellion, he tells them what he is going to do. Chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see that? God commands them to do something. Circumcise your heart and love me with your whole heart. And then a few chapters later, God promises them that he is going to do the very thing that he commanded them. God provides what God commands. And what is he ultimately talking about in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6? He's, he's talking about the new covenant. 
He's talking about the covenant of grace, which is not the Abrahamic covenant. That's next week. We'll get there. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, where we get kind of one of the clearest unpacking of the coming new covenant, God gets more specific about what he is going to do. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel 36. This is verse 26. Ezekiel 36, 26. Here's what I'm going to do. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is heart circumcision. And that is what physical circumcision is a sign of. It is ultimately a sign of what God must do. The cutting off of the flesh is a sign of what must happen to the heart. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from Him, unrighteous, unfit for relationship with Him. God is showing us what He is going to do about our problem, and it requires a new heart. Our heart is dead. It must be cut off, cut out. We need a heart transplant, and God says He will do it. And then, He says he'll put his very spirit inside of us. He will dwell literally in us. Remember covenant? I will be your God. I will be with you. He will put his spirit within us. And then what's that spirit going to do? Covenant conditions. Genesis 17, 1. Walk before me and be blameless. Be circumcised to represent those things. A covenant of works. Obey me and live. Ezekiel 36, 27. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and obey my rules. I will do this thing. I will cause you to walk before me and be blameless. You must be blameless. I will make you blameless. You must be righteous. I will give you my righteousness. Uh, John Owen, the greatest commentary ever written uh, on the book of Hebrews. I've been reading it lately. He equates the, the taking away of the heart of the stone, the giving the heart of the flesh, writing the law in our hearts, circumcising the heart. Those are all the same thing. It's all different ways to refer to the same thing. It's all the same. What is it? What really is this heart circumcision we're talking about? John Owen writes, It is the renovation of our natures into the image of God in righteousness and holiness. He goes on to say that it's the whole process of sanctification from beginning to end on our whole person, our whole soul. It is making us complete. It's making us righteous. It's making us perfect, fit for Him, for relationship. Righteous before God and right with God so that we can be in relationship with God. That's what circumcision is all about. That's what I mean when I say you must be circumcised. Not physically, but spiritually. Paul is clear, physical circumcision is nothing. But it was nothing then, too. It always pointed to this reality, this need for God to come in and do something about our sin problem and our death problem. And so Pastor Mike read earlier from Romans chapter 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, uh, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But it, it's, it's not. This is going to be important for who, we, who are the people of God when we come back next week. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. 
Right? The Apostle Paul writes that circumcision is a matter of the heart. And so then Paul will go on in Colossians 2.11 to say that you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands uh, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He says in Philippians 3.3 that we, the church, are the circumcision because it was never about the flesh. It was always about the heart. It was a sign of what we needed done for us. It was a sign of the perfect covenant obedience, the perfect righteousness that God requires for relationship with him. And that's why the whole promise to Abraham, this whole covenant, the whole story since Genesis 3.15 has been all about the seed, all about procreation, all about the son. And so point number four, and I'll be brief, uh, this is hopefully a good uh, preparation and cliffhanger for next week as we come back to sort out, again, the relationship between the promises and conditions, the relationship between Isaac and Ishmael, the relationship between circumcision and baptism. But right now, all I want you to see, and I pray be greatly encouraged by, is the fact that God provides heart circumcision through the covenant obedient seed. See, God commands covenant obedience. And you have to get this to get the gospel. You have to appreciate this to appreciate the gospel. God doesn't lower the bar. He doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't overlook sin or act like it's no big deal. He doesn't say, oh, you know, you had really difficult circumstances, so I get it. Or this happened, you did this, I get it. It's no, no problem. Sin's not a big deal. No, he can't do that ever. He is God. He is holy. He is justice. And so he commands the obedience that his holiness demands. And then he gives this sign that symbolizes this required covenant obedience. This is what it takes. This is what you have to be. You have to be separated. You have to be cut off. Holy. You have to be righteous. And in so giving this sign, he painfully then also reminds us that there is no way that we ourselves can fulfill the covenant condition. As awful as it sounds, the procedure would be easy compared to this. There is no way that we can walk before him and be blameless on our own. There is none righteous. No, not one. I am not righteous. No, not at all. My heart was dark and dead. It was utterly unfit, utterly unqualified. It was fit and qualified only for death and hell. I could not meet the conditions. I could not keep the command. But praise God that God provides what God commands. So that's the whole point of the story. It's not about Israel. It's not about the land. The promises are not made to them. The promises are not about the land. Paul tells us what this is all about. Galatians 3, 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See that? It's the gospel. What we're seeing in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, these promises made to Abraham, Paul says, hey, by the way, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And Paul only uses the gospel to refer to the good news of Jesus Christ, who is going to come and solve the sin problem that we have 
created. The gospel that is the power of God for salvation. How could what we're seeing 3,000 years before Jesus be the gospel? Well, Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. See, Paul specifically says that God is making these promises to Christ. He specifically says that these promises are about Christ. This whole covenant then is about Christ, the seed of Genesis 3.15, the son, the snake-crushing, sin-defeating seed. And how does he do it? By keeping the covenant conditions. He does it by being perfectly covenant obedient in our place. Thus, securing for us the blessings of the covenant, and then by sacrificially dying, by being cut off in our place, he pays for us the curses of the covenant. God provides what God commands. And so if you look back at the outline, you'll trace my somewhat convoluted argument, you'll see that it works out that God commands covenant obedience. But then in Christ, God provides covenant obedience. That's what this whole covenant is about. The promised seed who is going to come and keep the covenant conditions for us. Who is going to live for us and die for us so that we could be born again, having our hearts circumcised, having been given a new heart, and having been indwelt by His Spirit, we're now then enabled and desirous to keep God's good law and to be with him and to be increasingly like him. So all in this kind of one sign, God is both telling us what we must do and then telling us how we can't do it and then telling us how he is going to do it for us. And it's all summed up in this brutal and bloody covenant sign of circumcision. It points to the demand, the command of covenant obedience. It points to the need of a new heart And then in so doing, it points us away from self to the seed who is going to come and to do all of that for us. And therefore, for us, as Galatians 3 says, the condition now is only faith. The condition is always perfect righteousness. But the condition in the new covenant is that perfect righteousness now given to us as a gift through the gift of faith. The faith that lays hold of this covenant obedient seed that believes in him and that trusts in him and that rests in him and that rejoices in him. Faith connects us to Christ. Christ who is God's grace to us. We talk about means of grace and we think we need something, some substance, some force. No, we're saying these are the means. God's word and God's people are the means by which God communicates himself to us. Through the person of Jesus Christ, who is love and who is life for us. Who is the one that keeps the conditions of relationship with God so that we can be restored to relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, life is relationship. You cannot live without relationship, horizontally, without relationship with others, but especially without relationship with him. And I want you to see what is required for us in all of our sin 
and in our stubborn rebellion to be restored to relationship with the God of perfect righteousness and justice. It's not, hey, no big deal. Come on in. It's huge deal. Here's my son who's going to come and keep these perfect conditions for you. So I want you to see that and see the mercy and see the grace and see the great love which is demonstrated to us by not by overlooking our sin, but by owning it and by Christ drinking it up and taking it on himself and suffering every last drop of God's just and righteous wrath for all of our sin and by putting it on Christ. And he pays for all of it, lives perfectly because you failed to live perfectly. He dies because you failed to live perfectly so that you can be restored to God. And so I simply want us to rest and rejoice in the God who both commands and provides for those who are his. And then I desperately want all of us to see that we, uh, our world, uh, we, have, we have no solution to our sin problem. There is no ultimate solution within man for man's own created problem. Christ is the only solution to our sin problem. And so we put our ultimate hope only in him. And we, we mourn over injustice. We weep uh, with those who, who weep. We do uh, what we can uh, to seek and to pursue uh, justice um, in our, our world. And we, we pray. Oh, I, I was convicted this week just about how little I've kind of prayed about all this. Like I focused on a lot and I watched a lot of news and I thought about it a lot, but I, I just realized, man, how little have I prayed uh, for this family and for this man and for the condition of our country. We, we pray and we don't just pray because we realize that prayer is everything because prayer is what connects us to the God who is everything and who is life and who is sovereign. And so we put our only hope in him. We rest in the life and the solution that we have in him. We love our neighbors as we are called to do. And then we proclaim the good news that we have been entrusted with of the solution to the sin that has separated everyone, that ruins relationship, and that is wrecking our world, and that is bringing death. We have been given the privilege of speaking the sin-killing, death-defeating, life-giving Son of God who is the only hope for me and who is the only hope for our country and who is the only hope um, for this world. The one who says in John 14, 1. I love this verse. This is a great verse for right now. Let not your hearts be troubled. I would just stop there. We would just be like, what? <laughs> look, last two months. Look at this week. Let not your hearts be troubled. How? Believe in God. Uh, believe also in me. He's the one that Genesis 17 is about. He's the seed promised from the very beginning to come and solve the very problem that we had created in our sin. Hallelujah, right? What a savior. That's how our hearts can be untroubled. That's where we can find comfort and hope and peace. It's only in uh, the God of peace who has rescued us from our sin. Let me stop there. Let's, let's close um, now with, with a word of prayer. Father, help us. We ask uh, that you would comfort and encourage our hearts through your word. Father, forgive us for how presumptuous we often are when it comes to you and to your grace. Forgive us for our tendency to assume our right to be in relationship with you. 
Father, show us first, painfully and clearly, your perfect standard and your perfect law and how woefully, eternally short, every single one of us falls from keeping that good and holy and righteous law. Father, wreck us and ruin us and show us that there is no hope in ourselves or in the world. But Father, then direct us gloriously to your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come precisely uh, for that reason, who has looked upon me and upon my dark heart and upon my hopeless condition, and upon the same condition of every single one of his sons and daughters, and has come to enter into that and to take on all that darkness and to take on all that sin and to take on all that death and to pay the penalty and to keep the conditions, to live for us, to die for us, to rise again so that we could be once again restored uh, to the relationship with you that is life itself. Father, help us to believe that knowing you is not only eternal life, but it is life now. It is present life. It is fulfillment. It is identity. It is hope. It is joy. It is peace. Uh, Convince us of that, Lord. Uh, Capture our hearts with your grace and mercy. Uh, Show us through this strange and obscure text how even this points to how good and gracious and compassionate and kind you are towards those uh, who are yours. And Father, we do. We pray uh, for our country. Father, we pray uh, for what we're watching and the divide and the violence and the death. We pray for the Floyd family. We pray for many as we pray. We pray for our own city being uh, affected by all this. Father, sometimes we, we don't know what to do and we don't even know what to pray. But we know that you're sovereign. We know that you're in control. We know that you're good. And so I pray that you would help us to trust you. I pray that you would so consume us with your um, love for us that that would then overflow and a love for one another and it would overflow in compassionate and comparing hearts for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It would grow in a desire um, and a longing for you, Lord, to come and to right all the wrongs and to wipe away all the tears. And we long for that day uh, where their death will be uh, no more, Father. And we know that our hope is only in Christ to come and to do that for us. So, Father, comfort and encourage hearts. Um, help us to be your church. Uh, We pray that you would unify us, that you would give us uh, great uh, unity in Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, just give us humility and wisdom and compassion. Um, Show us how good uh, you have been to us. Show us how nothing uh, can affect and touch our relationship with you. I pray that everything else um, would result um, from that fixed and final and glorious truth. Father, we need your help, and we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.